for the week of February 13th, 2014. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello to all. Stephen Lacey here, senior editor at Green Tech Media. In the snow-covered, shut-down, state of emergency Washington, D.C. No shutdown here, though. It is business as usual for the podcast. And that means my co-hosts are here with me, usually uh, in D.C., but now hunkered down in her home in Virginia is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions, a clean energy public policy consulting firm. Catherine, how are you? Are you uh, next to a fire with a warm sweater and a cup of tea? Yeah, right. Well, I found to my horror that none of my kids' snow gear still fits because we haven't had a big snow like this in a while. So they're all wearing like my old galoshes outside. You did manage to get them outside while you were recording the show then? Oh, no, they're back. They're just they've just been secured. (laughs) In San Francisco this week, uh, trying to get back to New York, fresh off a press call on the consequences of Solar World's trade complaint against China is our good friend Jigger Shah. He's founder of Sun Edison and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, how goes it in San Francisco? Well, the weather's amazing, so uh, so we've got that to show for it. Do you have galoshes that fit? <laughs> I'm going to need them when I get back to New York. <laughs> Before we begin, I want to remind everyone that we'll be doing another live show here in D.C. coming up at the Building Energy Summit on April 1st. We're going to be capping off that conference by talking about some big innovations in building efficiency, a topic near and dear to my heart. You can find out more at 2014.buildingenergysummit.com, and I hope that folks can join us. So our next guest this week was supposed to be here in D.C. as well, but all flights are grounded with a foot of snow on the ground. She was nice enough to join us by phone from Denver, Colorado. It is Dr. Cheryl Martin, the acting director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, known as ARPA-E. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. How are things out west? Uh, Well, it sounds like a lot more uh, calm than uh, in D.C., but uh, I'm really looking forward to getting back tomorrow. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. Uh, We talk a lot about deployment on this podcast, but Cheryl is here to talk about early-stage innovation. ARPA-E was funded in 2009 to help support early-stage, potentially groundbreaking energy technologies. And in our first segment, we're going to look at the state of energy innovation in America. Then in part two of the show, we'll discuss themes coming out of this week's NARUC meeting in D.C. Energy commissioners have flocked to the city, and now they're stuck in the city, to talk about all things energy and utility related. And we have a roundup of the conversations on distributed generation, climate resiliency, and microgrids. In part three, we will examine the effectiveness of the solar industry's latest strategy to hit back against changes to solar promotion policies, and we'll round out the show by telling you something you may not know. Okay, first up, is ARPA-E going to do for energy what DARPA did to create the Internet? ARPA-E was set up in 2007 and funded in 2009 to support work on transformative energy technologies and help them get ready for early commercialization. We now have five years of experience at the agency. Um, That's not much time when you consider how long it takes for technologies in the lab to be proven, but it does give us enough to judge how things are going. Uh, Cheryl, for those who don't know much about how ARPA-E operates, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the agency was modeled and why you were brought on to lead it? Uh, Oh, absolutely. Um, So the agency, as you said, five years old, so very young, I think, in terms of uh, both deployment of of energy technologies, but also compared to DARPA, uh, the agency upon which we were modeled. I think DARPA is probably 
in its mid-50s at this point, so it certainly uh, had time to develop some amazing technologies that impact everyday life. And um, that was the model that RBE was, was uh, built on. We have um, some special um, authorities. We can bring in people from industry, academia, um, and uh, uh, national labs for three-year terms. So our program directors come in just like at DARPA. They come in with an idea. They pitch that idea uh, to the community um, at RPE um, after doing a lot of work, engaging folks outside, workshops, um, really trying, I think, the best way to think about it is reframing questions um, so that what we're looking for is bringing people to the table who have new answers, transformative ideas, um, things that could be um, significantly better than even the forward visioning of what we have today. Um, and I think a key piece of that success, right, we can envision a lot of things in the future, and we certainly have the intellectual and technical firepower here in the U.S. to make technology happen. But the interesting part is RPE's mission is the development and the deployment of early-stage energy technologies. And that's why I came from 20 years in the chemical industry and a bit of time in venture to the agency uh, two and a half years ago with the whole idea of the saying, if it works, will it matter? Um, and looking at, well, how do you engage uh, the appropriate next-stage partners on very early-stage ideas, ideas that sometimes people say, that isn't going to work, that's crazy. And so uh, every one of our projects um, has actually a plan. We meet them where they are. If they're an academic who's never thought about taking something to impact in the world, if they're a startup or even a larger company, we work with them and map out uh, what happens at the end of RPE funding. Right? RPE funds things... Uh, three years, $3 million nominally, I think is a good way to think about it. And we spend a lot of time of what happens at month 37. How are you going to have the knowledge in the network? How are you going to have the right testing to get you to the next step? Cheryl, you know, on that point specifically, uh, DARPA has had a lot of success because not only do they provide money, they actually are the first customer for a lot of these mm -hmm. technologies with the Department of Defense. You know, it doesn't sound like RPE has the same mandate, but at the same time, the administration has pushed really hard for energy efficiency and renewable energy to be implemented by the government. So how how does RPE sort of be, become the, uh, the first customer for some of these technologies or, or allow the government to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, th there's a number of ways. Um, the... Certainly, I can point most specifically to it on the defense side, where things like, um, you know, islanded bases, right? They're, they're inherently islanded. Ships are inherently islanded based on how they operate, forward operating bases. We see a lot of engagement with Marines, with Navy, with Army on exactly those questions where um, they, they need things, everything from um, H, high efficiency HVAC systems um, for forward operating bases. Um, we've got a relationship um, with Navy developing some of those to the next level um, to get um, down the path to procurement looking out in the future. Uh, we have others where they've recognized um, getting more out of the batteries and the storage they do have, more power in cons potentially constrained places um, is key. And so your battery management system, like how the battery actually works, uh, we're working on next-generation technology. They're running a parallel program now, starting um, programs with this generation, working very, very closely with our program directors so that as technology happens, it could be you know, on-ramped, essentially, into future, again, procurement, because that's how it would work there, 
Um, we also have a number of, of opportunities, uh, folks like uh, Primus Power, who's uh, a sub on a Raytheon contract through uh, Miramar Air Force, uh, Miramar Bay, Base for a microgrid demonstration. So all of those things are very, very specific examples of where things could go. So Cheryl, um, one thing that strikes me is that your model is kind of turns what would be a traditional model in the DOE research programs, which is we're going to research something and then we're going to figure out where it works. And your model is we here's a problem that needs a solution. What's the innovative solution? And I know when RPE was started, there was a wee bit of uh, RPE envy from the other uh, you know parts of DOE. Well, gosh, those guys are like the favorites. They get all the good stuff. But my sense is that what you do also is able to connect really well with the other uh, shops within DOE to kind of be a little more cross-cutting. Is that is that not the case now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure Catherine alluding to your kids, right? I'm sure they've never said that one was the favorite over the other, huh? <laughs> right. No, I think it's, you know, when RPE was new, you know, you had to stand up a new agency and that's got its challenges. And those who were here in that very beginning time with very few people, lots of work, were working to get that stood up. I think as we've had time to actually run projects and we've had time to have the conversations about what next, um, and certainly Secretary Moniz has been a big proponent of this across DOE. How do you make sure that um, things that we're working on um, are, are familiar to and understood by other parts of um, the agency so that where, where it makes sense that follow-on could happen? You know, you think about we've run carbon capture, really cool projects, right, um, using jet engine design novels to actually spin out CO2. Well, you can't go from RPE to deployment. So, you know, just recently in a competitive solicitation, three of our projects um, were picked up for next stage deployment, um, you know, through, um, through fossil, through metal. And so those are the types of things we're seeing happen. I think there's great conversation across DOE on grid and what's necessary in grid from both um, integration of renewables, uh, resiliency, um, you know, all of those questions, and we play a big role in that along with, with the other parts of the agency, and I think it's been great, and I think the fact that we reach so far out to the end customer and try to identify how, how would it need to be, what do they need to see so that they could adopt it, has helped us engage the rest of DOE in saying, why is it essential that we do this stage of testing with you? Yeah, and I think in some ways you are, because of the way you look at issues and the questions you ask and the way you've diversified the portfolio of, of your investments, it's inoculated you somewhat from politics. So, you know, having Bush signed, President Bush signed into law, the Competes Act that that started RPE, having President Obama funded originally in the stimulus package. And it seems that while there have been a, little, a few ups and downs um, just because of the budget issues, you all have never really become a lightning rod. Uh, people on both sides of the aisle really think RPE is important. And I think part of that is the way, just the way you describe the way your program runs. No, we've we've had tremendous bipartisan support from the very, very inception um, and and still, you know, benefit from that today. And I think to your point, the way we run, you know, the idea of the agency that we're going to push the envelope, we're going to ask these questions, and we're going to engage anybody and everybody out there who may be able to move these things ultimately to the market 
early on, right? So they, so even if they don't believe it's possible, and we've had people come to some of our kickoff meetings for, um, who said, hmm, we don't believe this. We don't believe you can do this. And they come back a year or two later to the summit, and they've come up and said, it really does work. And I think the idea that we do that and we engage people, right? Relationships take time, right? Nobody moves something forward with someone they don't know, they don't understand, they haven't seen it compared to other things. And I think the fact that we very, very consciously engage the broad, you know, energy sector and people who may be choosing to play in that sector in the future in our projects um, allows us to look at all these spaces and does keep, you know, I think the um, both both sides of the aisle very involved in what we're doing and very supportive. So I want to wrap up quickly with another definition of success. And a lot of people point to DARPA which ARPA-E is modeled after for helping create the foundation of the internet. And since we're looking at really long time horizons to scale energy technologies and we're integrating them into a very capital-intensive uh, set of legacy infrastructure, is it appropriate to compare successes from ARPA-E to, say, DARPA's success with the internet, which was a completely new set of infrastructure? Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately... Sure, that's a very fair comparison. I mean, we, you know, the internet wasn't invented overnight either, right? We, we kind of, if you dig back into time, you're talking tens of years, right, of development to really get it to where we are today, right? The threads of this were in the 70s and 80s, right? So you're not, you're not talking something that just came about overnight. Um, but yeah, do I think that based on things that um, are being invented now, um, that we could see completely different structures to our grids in the future? Could we see a whole different model for generation and transmission of energy? Absolutely. Um, do I think that some of the opportunities for how we use energy in our transportation, from how we manage our, our batteries to even what a battery looks like and what its role is in a vehicle, that would radically transform? Sure. Um, I think that that that's where we need to be. I think that the time is now for energy. Um, we've not seen as much innovation, you know, in the past, but for many, many reasons, we need to see it in the future. And I think RPE is really well positioned to give us those options. And I think that we're looking back 50 years from now. Um, I'm hopeful that, that those who, who judge it see that same level of impact. Well, Dr. Cheryl Martin is the director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy. Uh, she joined us from Colorado. Thank you so much for being here, and good luck making your way back to D.C. We'll uh, see you at the summit on the 24th. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for the conversation, and uh, good luck getting back, Jigger, as well. Take Thanks. Care. You can find out more about the ARPA-E Summit taking place here in D.C. starting on February 24th at www.arpae.com. Summit.com. We'll link to it on the podcast landing page. All right, well, we'll turn from technology innovation now to something that is decidedly less innovative, the utility sector. Commissioners, policymakers, and many others descended on D.C. this week for the NARUC Winter Meeting. If you'll remember from an earlier show a couple months ago, NARUC stands for the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Catherine was there all week gathering intel on how utility pros are thinking about distributed generation. Um, at the risk of repeating ourselves from our last conversation on this topic, Catherine, what new came out of this meeting for you? 
Uh, interesting, because it's not everything is new, of course, the topics, the big topic that, you know, I was talking about last summer about the topics being cybersecurity and net metering. The topic this time was resilience. Um, that was sort of top of mind is how do we get to a more resilient grid? And of course, there, there, the incumbent industry, the longtime incumbents, uh, you know, we had people from the nuclear industry, the coal industry, the utilities, who are really doubling down on needing to continue central power plants. Don't let coal die. Let's make our existing grid stronger, kind of juxtaposed with this move to recognize distributed generation and the need for resilience, but really much more as a utility service and under a utility construct rather than as as something that was separate from the you know from the incumbent situation. Yeah, I was there on Sunday for a couple of sessions and they talked a lot about resiliency. I'm actually going to be writing a short book on Superstorm Sandy, extreme weather, and uh, grid resiliency planning in the face of increasing extreme weather. So I was really interested in those topics. And I have to say, it has been a noticeable shift in the utility sector in reframing smart grid investments around resiliency, which we have discussed a number of times on this show. And and before really digging into it myself, Catherine, you had said, oh, this is starting to be baked in more in the regulatory construct and within individual utilities. And I am absolutely finding that myself. And that certainly played out at the Nehruk meeting. Um, there was this big session on the European experience as well. Uh, what's your sense for what utilities are taking away from countries like Germany and, and other uh, high penetrations of DG? Uh, that what happened in Germany is terrifying um, <laughs> and that it's scary. We don't want that to happen here. Um, look how solar can bring down the grid. Uh, so we need to make our grid stronger. We need to control. You know, a lot of this is about, you know, utilities understand that these new technologies are coming into the grid, but they want to have you know, because they're on the hook, I mean, to give them some, you know, to give them some credit, they're on the hook for reliable, cost-effective service to their customers. And so they have to be able to control it in some way, or at least understand it. And so they're trying to get their heads around that and figure out, now, how do we put the system together in a way that we can actually control it so that it doesn't get away from us so that there aren't these loads that, that peak and then drop off suddenly? And, you know, how do, we, how do we deal with this kind of holistically? And so the European experience to them is very frightening. Which, which was ironic because the European experience has been so amazing. I mean, they actually haven't had rolling blackouts because of high penetration renewables there. And so the resiliency of the grid and its ability to actually absorb is actually was well proven by the European experience. So it's amazing how they actually take the facts and twist them. Well, a lot of what they're saying is that the utility business model was so upended that that's what the scary part is, is less, it was much less focused on grid operations, although there was an element of that to it um, that EPRI is looking at, but it's much more focused. It was more focused by some of these financial analysts on the business model and what do we do about the utilities being able to recover their costs. So are they saying, let's not let this happen to us? Or are they being a little bit more progressive about it and saying, well, how can we change the construct to embrace this? Well, it just kind of depends on what do you mean by embracing this and what you mean by how far you're changing the construct. You all probably saw that um, EEI and NRDC signed a joint agreement. Um, That's and the Edison Electric Institute and the Natural Resources Defense Council, just for a heads up. 
people. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, sort of, this sort of speaks to, hey, the utility recognizes the world is changing. And yet, they don't, what they're suggesting isn't really going to change anything for anybody but to make sure that their that their business model is insured and is that still you know it still stays in place and is still financially viable for them. Well, so let's look into this because this is really oh, interesting. This is one of the big pieces of news I think coming out of the meeting that was somewhat underreported. So NRDC and EEI got together and they issued this call for some utility rate structures, uh, tweaks to utility business models, and changes to net metering. Um, They're advocating for change to traditional rate of return regulation, maybe toward a service model that helps utilities embrace DG, and also potentially changes to net metering that account for what utilities say their grid costs are. So this is actually an extension of a partnership they founded in 2008 to support distributed generation. And uh, I know Jigger has some very strong thoughts on this as well. Uh, You know, is this an example of EEI sort of moving toward the left and embracing a new utility model or NRDC moving further toward what utilities want? Look, I mean, you're talking about a guy who got played by the electric utility industry in the 90s, Ralph Kavanaugh, to create the deregulation uh, legislation in California. Yeah, for the utilities, this is a great concept. For the solar industry, we are more scared than ever that NRDC is actually against us, not for us. I just don't see it. So NRDC has come out with some blog posts explaining their stance, and they are roundly criticizing utilities for attacking solar, uh, blatantly calling out Duke Energy for changes to net metering. I think that NRDC is probably more progressive on this than you're painting it. You're talking about an organization that actually, you know, declined to include solar in the carve-outs in Washington State, RPF, and that went out to the ballot initiative. You're talking about an organization that has actively said negative things about solar in 2005, 2006, 2007, when we really needed them to back us. And now you're what? talking about an organization who, where the reporting on the Energy Collective and other places – is saying that Ralph Kavanaugh on the record is saying we actually need to figure out how to get solar people to pay their fair share when we haven't had any consensus yet on how to calculate what the fair share might be. And that calculation may actually come out that solar is actually adding more value to the grid than we're taking. What did they say in 2005, 2006? In 2005, 2006, NRDC made it very clear that they thought that solar was too expensive, that it was premature to do any mandates around solar, and that we should all be focused only on energy efficiency. At a time when we needed their muscle and their politics to help us pass our legislation, we did it in spite of them, but they actively tried to undermine our positions because they thought that it would slow down the deployment of energy efficiency. Yeah, and they have not been uh, working in the states with a group of enviros and solar companies that have that have been actively trying to preserve net metering, and yet the utilities are able to now say they have a major environmental group that they're working with. Um, so yeah, it kind of it it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah, it certainly looks good for EEI. I will say, long term, I think that the industry does need to be more proactive on this issue. I agree with you, Jigger, that NRDC should should wait until we have a definitive conclusion on the net benefit 
uh, of solar on the grid, and this is definitely premature. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not as against their stance. I think that environmental organizations do need to work with the utility sector and show that they're trying to be a proactive partner in this. Remember, the utilities don't write all the rules. The regulators write the rules, okay? So what you really have to do is make sure that the regulators understand how they need to think about this. And I had a meeting with a small group of regulators. Um, a, a bunch of them were invited, and a few of them came to talk about how do we create kind of a new regulatory scheme to include energy storage. Now, if you're able to do that, that means you can include a lot of other things. And how do we look at the metrics around regulation? How do you build in resilience? How do you build in and um, emissions reductions into not as externalities, but really as internal to your cost benefits analysis. So, I mean, you have to get the regulators to start thinking outside of the box, too. And I will say some of them are really ready to do that. Yeah, look, I mean, the thing that you have to realize about this is 2014 is make or break for the solar industry. We are going to defend ourselves in 20 different cases against utilities who are unfairly um, criticizing solar around net metering and other pieces. We actually have to fight this tooth and nail when NRDC says openly that they think that solar is not paying their fair share. That's the bias that the regulars take in and the amount of effort and money that we have to spend now to get the regulators to be back at even keel where you know they actually will keep an open mind on this becomes that much more difficult. Either NRDC is too stupid to know that they're actually hurting us and making us put up a lot more resources or they're sly as a fox, which is what I think, and they actually want to be on the utility side so they can keep pushing their energy efficiency agenda at the expense of solar. All right. Well, so this was the big news coming out of Nehruk. So since we're on this topic, let's just transition into the third piece of this. Um, speaking of NRDC's agreement with EEI, let's kind of change to how the industry, how one industry group is trying to push back on those changes. This group, Tell Utilities Solar Won't Be Killed, or Tusk, which is co-chaired by Barry Goldwater Jr., is trying to push back on this and fight fire with fire. Here's its latest ad attacking Duke's CEO on her proposed changes to net metering, which was recently posted on YouTube. In a recent TV interview, Lynn Good, CEO of Duke Energy, told one lie and one truth. Here's the lie she told. We are supportive of solar and we're supportive of it as an important part of the portfolio. Here's the truth she told. What we are an advocate of is ensuring that we get paid. What we are an advocate of is ensuring that we get paid. Ensuring that we get paid. Ensuring that we get paid. Duke Energy, looking out for number one. So this is quite a different tone here, and it uh, reminds me of a lot of the mudslinging in election season. Coming from an industry that has taken a pretty positive approach to messaging, Tusk's ads are something fundamentally new for solar. So is this going to be effective? Jigger, you know, you're really upset about NRDC's approach. You're not afraid to lob some verbal grenades yourself. What do you think about Tusk's approach to this? They're absolutely right. This is about building raw power. We don't actually have the data yet to come to a compromised decision with the utilities. Until we figure out exactly how to do a value of solar study, we have four or five major universities who agree with the uh, way that we calculate those uh, value of solar studies, and then we actually implement them, which I think will take two years. Um, we're not actually going to be able to have the data to really 
have a settlement. So between now and then, this is about building raw constituent power. And Tusk is doing that. Duke is amazing at that. When you think about what Jim Rogers said on the stage around how, you know, the utilities are going to start from a blank page and distributed generation is the future. And if I came back reincarnated, I'd be David Crane. All of that is bull. He's still the chairman of Duke, and for the CEO of Duke to come out in an anti-solar stance at the same time that the chairman of Duke is saying all this other stuff is a deliberate ruse. They're very smart at this, and we actually have to be just as smart. It just This ad in particular felt very childish and petty to me. I mean, I get it. I understand why the solar industry and some of these subgroups are being much more aggressive, and I think it's appropriate. But when I see ads like this, I wonder what's going on in the minds of people developing them. It just feels like it's alienating the very people that they're trying to negotiate with. Yeah, look, the communications firms that they hire could be better. I'm not suggesting that if I was to create that ad that I would do the same thing. But I do think that we are on a make or break year. Vote Solar and all these other organizations are going to be spending their entire budgets, and it may not be enough, for us to cover 20 different battles around the country. And Edison Electric Institute, as well as ALEC, as well as all these other acronyms that we don't you know, even know about, are going to come after us this year. And it's important for us to all come together and not be – Oh, let's start in the middle and let's figure out how we actually come to a consensus and all this other stuff when they are literally trying to put us out of business. And, you know, like and for us to sit back and think, oh, but they actually have our best interests at heart. They're trying to figure out a a way to work together. That is simply not true. And people need to start getting angry. Yeah, I think and I agree that different messages are going to work for different audiences, too. So you need this message. You need more positive message. You need any way that you can to build the constituency for solar so that you can defeat Alec as you have in all the states you've done before. Yeah, you know, my thinking on this has evolved quite a bit. So when I went over to Climate Progress um, a few years ago and did more advocacy journalism and really tried to hit on the climate front, I was really uncomfortable with this type of messaging. And then I realized over time that there were some pretty powerful forces uh, with big money on the state level to try to kill renewable energy standards, and it became more and more clear over time. And and then I started becoming more supportive of the industry being far more aggressive uh, in its campaigning. So while I was turned off by this ad in particular, I totally get it. I mean, I understand why the industry is doing this, and I'm in agreement with you on that, Jigger. Um, I, I just hope that they can formulate their messaging a little bit better, because even for someone like me who gets it, I was just very turned off by this advertisement. Uh, one thing I just would note was that when I was I was on a panel um, talking about microgrids at Nehruk, and there was somebody from Duke Energy on the panel, and he held up a chart that showed what their resource mix was in 2005 versus what it will be in 2015, right around the corner. And their um, nuclear fleet will go from 36 to 35 percent, not a huge change. Coal from 55 to 38 percent, so some reduction in coal. Natural gas from 50. 50- 
5% to 24%. So that was a big increase. Renewables from 1% to 3%. And it just struck me that that is not going to bring down their grid to, to go from 1% to 3%. Um, and what's interesting is the unregulated arm of Duke is heavily investing in grid storage. I mean, they are out there doing all kinds of really interesting, creative projects all over the country. So I actually think that the utility, while they um, they may appear to be fighting back and are fighting back, they are also hedging with their unregulated arms. The utilities are often talking out of both sides of their mouth. So when I wrote that story about Jim Rogers um, talking about the massive changes in distributed generation, he's very comfortable with going in front of a crowd and talking about the need to develop more DG. But when it comes to Duke's actual policies and many of the other utilities that are working with regulators and trying to figure out their DG portfolio, they are very interested in limiting the amount of penetration that they see. And so their public statements often do not jive very well with what they're trying to do privately. Yeah, I think that, I mean, for me, the conclusion is, which is, I think, something similar you said, Stephen, is just that I think on the reporting side of the clean energy movement, we just have to be very clear about highlighting this two-faced approach as opposed to giving people like Jim Rogers all these awards for being, you know, a communicator of the year on climate change. Yeah. Anyway, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they may not know. Jigger, what do you have this week? So there was a huge movement in 2009-2010 to talk about microinverters and DC-DC optimizers. Um, and I've been saying for a long time that power electronics really is the area where the solar industry is going to make a huge push this year on the technology side. And I think, you know, Green Tech Media did a great piece this week on how in the U.S. residential space, um, almost 60% now of total installed capacity um, has the use of DC optimizers and microinverters. And so this is no longer theoretical. This is real. And I think, you know, when you think about Enphase and Tygo and SolarEdge and some of these other companies, um, I do think that there's a huge amount of improvement on the economics of solar that's going to come from the use of advanced power electronics. Yeah, this is huge. I can remember just a few years ago, people were saying, well, are these microinverters really going to work? How much can they scale? And now we have seen an extraordinarily large penetration in residential solar. So quite the change in the industry. Catherine Hamilton, tell us something we don't know. I have something really different. So it's Valentine's week. And in addition to us all getting something lovely from our crush, in my case, my husband, um, House of Cards will release the next season. And I've been absolutely binging on this first season of House of Cards. And I just want to say that what you may not know is that that is not really the way things work in D.C. Um, especially nobody looks like Claire Underwood and has that great of a haircut. But it is absolutely fun to watch. And I'm ready. I'm going to be ready on Valentine's to start the second season. What are you talking about? Your haircut rivals hers. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no one in D.C. looks like her. All right. Well, we're all familiar with China's air pollution problem, which is outrageously bad. And China's looking to ban coal plants in certain regions to cut pollution. But I read this story this week on Inside Climate News that shocked me. It turns out China is increasingly relying on uh, turning coal to synthetic fuel, which is cleaner to 
than just a burning coal in a power plant. But the process uses so much energy that its carbon footprint is double that of a traditional coal plant. So researchers say that if China's syngas plants are uh, built out, that the country alone would rip through the world's carbon budget which we would need to stay under in order to stabilize global temperatures at around two degrees Celsius. <laughs> this is totally frightening to me, and I think it proves what we talked about in a previous show, that China's push to reduce pollution is not really about climate change. It's about cleaning up the air and preventing riots in the street. And I think if they were serious about climate change, a lot of these types of projects probably wouldn't be on the table. And uh, this story, it, it scared the hell out of me. Well, it really should. I mean, you know, China is... China's a story that's going to be on the mouths of folks for a long time. Fareed Zakaria this week actually uh, had a big story on how the head of emerging markets for Morgan Stanley is expecting uh, China's market uh, growth rates to crash. Um, and that's going to ha- have a negative impact on commodity prices like oil and other things around the world. So, I mean, I do think that China has um, a, a real planning problem on its hands for as, for as uh, much as we laud their you know their planning status. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's all for this week's show. For links to some of the stories we discussed, head on over to greentechmedia.com. There you can find our RSS feed and subscribe to us through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is very simple, The Energy Gang. If you want to contact us with story ideas, questions, comments, anything at all, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And don't forget that we're going to have our live show at the Building Energy Summit on April 1st, so check that out and come join us. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. We really appreciate your support. And, of course, thanks to my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine, have a great week. Thanks. I'm going to go pop some Godiva chocolate and uh, wait till next week. <laughs> Jigger, you as well. Oh, Good luck getting back to D.C. Or back to New York, I should say. Yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be an interesting, interesting day today. <laughs> well, glad you could spend it with us for a little part of it. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.